This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Amanda Smith and this is Sporty. You know, so often sport and exercise is about pushing your body to its limits. But that really doesn't appeal to everyone and it's not right for everyone. What if what you need to do is something calmer, gentler? Maybe Tai Chi is for you. It is a sort of form for intermediate students. I'm sure you have learned before and you shouldn't have any problem. Uh, just follow me so slowly to the nice soothing music. Okay, let's start. It's probably the only exercise I do now. Is it the only exercise you need to do? I think it is. I think it is at this stage. I've always walked a lot, but I've got wonky knees and ankles. I would walk if I could walk, but the thing with Tai Chi is it doesn't affect arthritic knees and ankles. Uh, but you'll still get the exercise, you still get the core strength. How do you remember the, well, I mean, it's like choreography. How do you remember the, the sequences? It's actually muscle memory. Once it gets into the muscles and you're breathing properly, you just go. It does all flow and it does get into the, what they call muscle memory. And more on Tai Chi later here on Sporty. But it is with what they call muscle memory that we're starting. You'll probably have a sense of it too. It's like, well, it's like learning to ride a bike. But what precisely is muscle memory? There's actually considerable debate about what it is and where in the body it resides, or even if it exists. And experts working in different disciplines look at it from different perspectives. So let's bring together a couple of those. Dr Craig Goodman is an exercise physiologist, muscles are his thing, and Associate Professor Alan Pierce is a neuroscientist, the mind is his thing, more specifically, sports-related neuroplasticity. So first of all, how would each of you describe muscle memory? Alan? Well, I guess if we can start off with a bit of a rant for me anyway, because this is one of the things that I, as a neuroscientist, I don't actually like the term muscle memory. I prefer the term motor memory because it is about the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, retaining motor skills and being able to memorise motor skills. So it could be memorising uh, forehand in tennis or a particular motor skill for strength training, or it could be even playing a piano. So for me, it's about the motor skill. And so motor memory is about memorising, retaining and drawing upon those skills in the right context. All right. Well, Craig, how would you describe it? Is it muscle memory as far as you're concerned? Well, yes. And if a muscle physiologist like myself, um, it's really about, uh, it's a phenomenon that bodybuilders and athletes have experienced for a long time where if they undergo a long-term period of detraining or they stop their training and they lose muscle mass, their muscles become smaller. Once they re-engage training, they're actually able to increase that muscle mass relatively quickly, a lot quicker than what it took to actually get there in the first place. So there's some inherent memory, something that accelerates that regaining of muscle mass. So we're happy with that term muscle memory at this stage. So is there, Craig, something that you know, the muscle itself 
inside the muscle that forms this remembrance from repetitively performing a particular action, even if you're no longer using it in that way. Yeah, so one of the current theories, and, and this is based largely on animal studies, is that with something like strength training or what we call mechanical overload, there's an increase in the number of nuclei in the muscle fibres. So muscle fibres have multiple nuclei and those numbers of nuclei can increase. And it seems to be when you undergo a period of detraining or you stop training, those nuclei stay there. Even if the muscle sort of even diminishes. If, even if the muscle atrophies and gets smaller, those nuclei stay there. And so the current theory is that somehow uh, having that extra number of nuclei helps you regain your muscle size when you re-engage training. Well, Alan, as a neuroscientist, tell me more about how you think about and understand. Well, I can't call it muscle memory with you. I have to call it motor memory with (laughs) you, don't I? Yes, thank you very much. (laughs) So from the neuroscience perspective, we look at how the nervous system innovates muscle or stimulates muscle. Um, And it's a very complex system of the neural networks in the brain and spinal cord that then goes to the muscle, but it's how those circuits are refined. So if you are practicing a skill, whether it's strength training or whether it's, again, a forehand in tennis, you need to do that repetitive practice and that strengthens certain pathways. So if we think about in very simple terms, we have two nerve cells or neurons talking to each other, that repetition of learning will strengthen that pathway um, to the detriment of other pathways. So it means that a particular muscle will get stimulated to practice the optimal amount of force that's required. Other muscles will be turning off to allow the expertise in that in that particular skill. It's all about trying to strengthen those pathways and we call that long-term potentiation. So the strength of that synapse where you have two nerves or multiple nerves or or talking together is retained so that if you stop training or you stop practicing, that memory of that pathway is still retained somewhat. How many times, though, do you reckon you, is it known that you have to repeat an action before it is sort of locked away in the memory bank? Well, that's 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 the sixty-four thousand million dollar question, I suppose you could say. Um, there was the the ten thousand hour rule that uh, Professor Erickson talked about, but there seems to be quite not universally no, agreed to. No, though, no, is that's it? right, exactly, because you know it depends on the situation. But it, look, you know, if I was just moving my finger index finger away from my middle finger, for example, and I just did that a thousand times there would be some neuroplastic change in the brain. Whether that's actually worthwhile in a, in a, in a constructive sense remains to be well, seen. Well, that's for you to judge. That's right, exactly. <laughs> so we have experience-dependent, task-dependent changes yeah. in, the, in the brain as a result of, of continually moving. So it's really trying to optimise the environment for a skill to be refined to that point of expertise. Rather and than you, saying that's ha- right. this many times. That's right, exactly. Yep. Craig... What's your sense of why this happens? Why you can develop a, a certain motor skill, not use it for a while, and then when you come back to it, it's still there? Well, in terms of uh, muscle and muscle size and muscle strength, 
there's certainly an evolutionary advantage, at least theoretically, that if you can imagine if you're in, the, say, the summer months and doing tasks that require a lot of strength and muscle size, and then you went into a period of relative inactivity during the winter, it would make sense that when you come back to the warmer months and you need to get going again, um, that you, you regain your strength and muscle size relatively quickly. You don't have to spend the rest of the summer trying to increase your strength. So from that point of view, it, it kind of makes sense in evolutionary terms. Mm. Alan, why, why is it, though, that something you, you might have learnt years ago, even if you haven't used it, is easier to get back than it is to learn a whole new skill? Yes, it comes from, I guess, the, the understanding that when you learn a skill, you create certain um, motor engrams. So they're very specific patterns of movement. Again, that comes down to the amount of, of contraction or force that required in the muscle, but also accessory muscles, which we call synergistic muscles, and also relaxation from opposing groups, which is the antagonist muscle. So that patterning movement is is then stored in very deep parts of the brain. Yeah. Well, Craig, what, what's your perspective from the the muscles point of view you know if you is it true that the earlier you get that memory into the muscle the more deeply embedded it is yeah this is one of the proposed implications of this theory that um if you can get people undertaking strength training for instance at an earlier age maybe in their teens to 20s and then if they happen for whatever reason uh, undergo a long period of relative inactivity they get a job you know life happens uh, they become a bit sedentary that the number of nuclei that they developed in that, those early decades of strength training will hopefully still be there. And then when they're older and they suddenly go, oh, I need to become more active and they undertake strength training as, a, as an older adult, then the increases in strength and size they get will be sort of amplified than if they hadn't done that training in the early years. I mean, ideally, we'd like people to just stay active their whole life, but, you know, that's not always realistic. But. So you, you, need, you need to sort of really develop a range of motor skills when you're young or encourage young people to do that so that um, even if you don't continuously use them, you've sort of put them in the bank? Yeah, so to speak, yeah. And in the muscle case specifically, at least according to that theory, you're putting, in a sense, these sort of extra nuclei in the bank. Well, as, as we're speaking, Craig, I am thinking that um, developing a particular muscle memory is not actually always useful. Like, you know, I always make the same uh, typos. When I type my name, I get two letters around the wrong way. And I don't seem to be able to unlearn that. It's very frustrating, but the pattern seems to be in my fingers. It's amazing. How can you, well, can you and how do you unlearn something that isn't useful to you, either like typos or bad habits you developed, say, learning to play tennis years ago? It sounds a little bit like, um, you know, that idea of perfect practice makes perfect. And if you've developed a skill there, inadvertently the wrong pattern in a sense, you've learnt that. And I guess Alan might have a bit more of a perspective on how you can try to unlearn that. Well, I guess by the fact that you are making that mistake, you're actually reinforcing that anyway as a motor pattern. So every time you, you, you type two letters in the wrong way, well, that's another repetition of yes, that. Because, because this is all really about uh, movements you do without thought, isn't it? Yes. And so I presume what you have to do, like with the, the typo I do, is bring a sort of consciousness back to it and think about it every time I do it to rewire that 
pattern? Absolutely. That's exactly right. So, you know, think about when you first learned how to type that you were very conscious about the movements you were making, putting a lot of thought and energy into that. And then as you progressed in your expertise, you, you, you know, other parts of the brain can take over. And so you didn't have to be as conscious about it. So in trying to unlearn and relearn a new pattern, you need to employ the same processes again. And that requires, again, more effort. And then as you start to improve, providing you're getting some feedback that you actually aren't doing the wrong thing, (laughs) is the fact that you'll you'll start to uh, relearn and rewire, which is the basis of neuroplasticity. Yeah, yeah. Well, Craig, coming back to to what you were talking about earlier about the implications, I suppose, of, as we colloquially Mm. call it, muscle memory, what are the implications in high-performance sport? So one proposed implication for this is in the field of sports doping, in particular experiments in, in mice again where they've given mice a steroid, which caused a very large increase in muscle mass and at the same time also increased the number of nuclei. And when you take the mouse off the steroids and their muscles atrophy back to normal, those nuclei, again, stay there. They don't, they're not lost. And they stay there for some time. And they've shown that if you then get the mouse to do some strength training, they're increasing. <laughs> I'm imagining a mouse yeah. with, right, with the barbell. A barbell. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> um, when they do that, when they under, undergo some strength training, their growth is accelerated beyond the mouse that exercises that hasn't had the pre-exposure to the steroid. So one of the implications for that is that, you know, for instance, in high-performance sport and perhaps someone's had a, uh, had a positive test for anabolic steroid use and they get banned for two to four years or whatever the, the current recommendation is, according to this theory, there's a possibility that even when that person comes back into sport after they're banned, that they might still have an advantage, uh, even if they're not no longer taking steroids, um, to increase their muscle mass when they re-engage training. Mm. So that's potentially an argument for longer ban periods if that can be established. Potentially. Now, I must, I must stress that a lot of this is based on sort of animal work and there's still Yes, well, I was going to pick up on, on your use of the word theory. So yeah. there is still a lot unknown about this. There is. And so a lot of it's based on animal work because obviously it's a lot easier to do that sort of biochemical mechanistic type work in rodent muscle than it is in human muscle. Um but it's, it's certainly an attractive hypothesis, but it's not without its detractors either. There are certainly groups that disagree with this theory. So it's a, it's a kind of watch this space. Uh, sort of dueling teams are going to be working this out in the future. Yes, and no sooner does one study come out affirming the muscle nuclei hypothesis than another one comes out refuting it. It just goes to show how much we still actually don't know about the human body. But as with all these things, it is more than likely a combination of mind and body, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Dr Craig Goodman's field is exercise physiology and skeletal muscle function and adaptation. He's from the College of Health and Biomedicine at Victoria University. And Associate Professor Alan Pearce is a neuroscientist who's interested in the neuroplasticity of motor skill acquisition. He's in the School of Allied Health at La Trobe University. And it's fascinating to speak to the two of you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're listening to Sporty with Amanda Smith. Now, sport and exercise are so often about exerting yourself, getting sweaty and getting your heart rate up. 
But maybe what would be better for you is to find a way to move, to exercise, that allows you to slow down a bit, to calm down and be more focused. This is the first instalment of a little series called Slow Sport. Let's try Tai Chi. Slowly lift your left heel. Step out of the ball of the foot, shoulder width and center your weight. Slowly raise your arms to shoulder height and shoulder width. Pull back the fingers, drop the elbows, press down and bend the knees. This is an indoor class with advanced students. They're all women, well into their 70s, and I have to tell you, they are really good. They've got great balance and control and focus. I'm Pam. And why do you do Tai Chi, Pam? Well, I started doing it really for relaxation and um, a bit of a break to a, a very busy working week that I had at the time when I started. So why did you decide you needed to do something to relax? I had started really because I had breast cancer 20 years ago. It was mentioned on a, on a brochure as one of the things that you could do as a follow-up. And um, I always felt that even though some doctors might disagree, I, I had a feeling stress might have been involved. And um, so I needed to just slow down a bit and found a lesson on, on a Wednesday night which broke the working week perfectly for me and um, I'm still here 20 years later. And what does it do for you now? I think it keeps me fit. I feel that I have a degree of suppleness that others might not have at a similar age and also it gives me time to switch off because you have to concentrate. If you don't concentrate, you completely lose what you're doing and all of a sudden you're heading in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, make sure to keep the body upright. Hands up one more time. As you open the arms, you breathe in, breathe out, and lower your arms. Han Jin Sung is a Tai Chi master. He runs Tai Chi Australia. I started back in China 52 years ago when I was little. I think my hometown, which is called Changchun, near Russia and Korea. And then uh, later I went to the Beijing Sports University where I specialize in Chinese martial arts, which includes Tai Chi. Yes, well, Tai Chi is, as you say, a branch of Chinese martial arts, but it's, it's so slow and gentle. How is it a combat sport, a self-defense thing? Every single movement has its own martial application or applications. I think most of the people will probably have watched the uh, wax on, wax off, the Karate Kids. So they all know every single movement means something. It's not just a slow, gentle, dance-like movement. Okay, but to me it does look like a slow, gentle, dance-like movement. I mean, I can see you doing Tai Chi, you obviously have a lot of strength and power. Is that developed through doing Tai Chi? Yeah, surely it is. When you practice Tai Chi seriously, the mind, the body, breathing has to be working simultaneously in order to maximize the benefits of Tai Chi. That's why you see when I do it, you can see more than just the physical gentle movement. I'm sure, Amanda, you will get it. <laughs> Well, I would love to have your strength and power and control and balance one day. <laughs> what, what's the English translation of Tai Chi? 
literally it means supreme ultimate. I don't know whether you can understand my Chinese English or not. Well, it, it's great. Yeah, I can. Supreme ultimate. So that sounds, well, can't get better than that, can it? No, definitely not. There are the people who's been with me for how long? Been with me? Oh, years. How long? About eleven years. Is it? Why did you start? Because my balance was bad. I went to a thing, and they suggested that I do these rather dumb exercises, or the alternative was to try Tai Chi, and I've stayed with it. And I don't really know whether the balance is any better, but <laughs> I'm still standing and I'm still going. So <laughs> and what's your name? Barbara. And then handstand, and one kick, two kick, and strike. Yeah. So you, because you missed that movement. You're one moment ahead of us. Actually, I put it in, but it was really quick. Probably too quick. <laughs> so my name's Kay. And how long have you been doing Tai Chi, Kay? Around about 20 years. Okay. So why? Uh, hitting 50, or even before that, I had a lot of trouble with my back, lower back from an injury, and I was sort of using a walking stick. And I went to a Chinese doctor eventually out of sheer exasperation and he said I'll go and do Tai Chi and I'm great so it's really good for me and if I stop for any length of time yes I stiffen up so how often do you do Tai Chi uh, six times a week but I do three classes a week and three times what on your own at yeah. home yeah it's really good exercise it's very relaxing and if you're feeling very stressed or hit up about something it really calms you down because of how you move Next one, painting the rainbow, bring the hands all the way up, slowly shift the weight to the right, arms to the left. Uh, tai Chi was actually created based on the Chinese medicine theories and the yin and yang philosophies. We Chinese people believe when we are in good health, we have sufficient positive energy qi to maintain the balance of yin and yang inside our body to keep ourselves healthy. The research has proved that Tai Chi is good for the people with the arthritis or asthma or even with the high blood pressure. So when you learn the movement, you only focus on relaxing the mind, the body and the breathing as well. How could you have any time to think about anything else? If you focus on one thing, obviously the other part of the brain will shut down. All the stress, everything else all gone because you are focusing on whatever you are supposed to do when you do Tai Chi. In this class, that involves sometimes doing movements with wooden poles or walking sticks. Now it's, now it's swords. <laughs> What's your name? Judy. It's all been so calm and tranquil and now you pull out a sword. Well, we've done our walking stick, you know, we proved we're dangerous little old ladies with a walking stick, so yeah. That's right, there's a, a pole and then a walking stick and now a sword. Now a sword, weapons of all description, yeah. Great for the balance, great for the concentration. And we haven't lost anyone yet that I know of. <laughs> and what's your name? Helen. In the course of my Tai Chi learning, not only did I have my wrist broken, when I was doing some sword movements. Oh, so a Tai Chi injury? No, 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 no. Totally separate, but I was learning the sword. And I believe the combination of persevering and continuing on 
I've had a lot more use. Oh, so it was good oh, rehabilitation yes. therapy That's for right. the broken wrist. Um, the rehabilitation, but more the level of fitness. And I do quite a few classes, including at the moment a class at Think Pink for the breast cancer ladies. And one of them said to me the other day, which was really nice, so how much have you got to do because you're so agile and flexible? Can we become... And I'm thinking, oh, OK, right. So it must show. I mean, obviously, I'm older than most of the women that are there. And you're more agile and flexible than, than them? Well, they seem to think so. The other thing, too, I think, is that Tai Chi around the world, it's not as competitive as some of the other things. So there's an interest in whatever level you're at. All right, what I do is I'll take you through the Shibashi next. Okay, we'll probably do three times of each movement. A couple of the moves that you were doing had beautiful names. Uh, yes, uh, for example, of the 24 form uh, for beginners, the first movement is called Parting the Horse's Mane. The second movement is called White Crane Spreads Its Wings. And then from there on, they're grasping the bird's tail, the jade lady works on the shadows, and the snake creeps down, etc. So that's all beautiful. It all sounds like um, poetry. That's right. Uh, the, another part of Tai Chi is the visualization to ask you to realize the meaning of white crane spreads its wings. In Chinese culture, the crane is a very good symbol for uh, good health and longevity. Okay, back to center, palms out. Parting the clouds, keep the body upright, and bend the knees. So how do the names attached to the moves help? Because most of the names of the movements are connected with nature of some sort, they might be birds, animals, trees, clouds, it adds more meaning to the movements. And I think that when you visualise the action with the name of the movement, you do get more feeling about what you're doing. So give me an example. Well, an example, the cloud hands, as you're drifting the hands across, you get an image of the clouds floating by in the sky. Uh, a little bit more dramatic, the white crane spreads its wings. So you've got this beautiful white crane extending its wings out, ready to fly. And that's your arms? That's my arms. Um, there are other movements that are connected with animals, uh, like the tiger, how it stretches and reaches um, and a parting a horse's mane is an interesting one if you think of rippling your hands up the horse's neck under the mane parting the mane gives you a far different aspect on what you're doing with your hands rather than just oh yes extend it and look at it when you think well why, why am I doing that it just makes such a difference can you take me through some of the fundamentals yes of course let's go <laughs> All right. In Chinese martials and Tai Chi, there are many different kinds of the footworks. And one of the basic footwork or stances is called a bow stance because the shape of the stance is like a bow. As in bow and arrow. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You want to try? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Now, let's do this way. Keep the feet apart, shoulder width. Okay. Yep. Yep. Now, what you do, slowly bend your knees, sinking down. Okay, P, 
pivot right here slightly out to the corner transfer weight to the right lift your left heel don't reach out just comfortably to the heel yes and slowly transfer weight forward keep your feet flat don't lift the back heel bend your front leg back leg just bend slightly okay now look at the shape of the stance is like a bowl this is one of the five basic stances in Chinese martial arts and in Tai Chi if anyone doing Tai Chi you talk about the bowl stance I'm sure they all know okay let's follow me again sit back let's try the other side weight forward keep the back foot flat that's it so now I know the bow stance like everyone who knows Tai Chi does thank you you're welcome Tai Chi master Han Jin Sung and that's the first instalment of Slow Sport, the mini-series, for when you want to do some exercise or sport without the pumping and sweating and pushing. I'm Amanda Smith. Join me for more Slow Sport in forthcoming editions of Sporty. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.